It's good to be back, too. Mark and I this week went down to uh, just outside of Roanoke, Virginia for a conference of Anglican pastors, all the way people from Maine down to South Carolina. And it's uh, good to be back here with you all worshiping together. And for those of you who are new, we're currently in the middle of a series called The Center. We're focusing on uh, the Gospel of Luke. And a few weeks ago, um, I preached on the passage where Jesus comes and he proclaims, he stands up, he gives his message of what the kingdom of God is all about. Or maybe another way to say the kingdom of God might be to say uh, God's rescue plan for this world. It might be helpful for you. And then after that, we dove into Luke 5, and Mark preached several weeks on that, where we looked at how this rescue mission, how this plan, this kingdom of God, was actually coming about. And there have been two themes that I feel like have been coming out of this, and two words I want you to hear for the rest of this uh, time right now, is um, being reformed and being reconciled. And so just listen for those as, as, that, as that comes out. Um, so hopefully we'll be diving in here um, and just think about that, that reform, that reconciliation. Again, restoration, reorientation, get our words for us tonight. So, but before we do that, I don't know how many of you have ever been to London, but there's a sign uh, by the subway called Mind the Gap. And basically, there's this gap. You'll see it on, a, on if you ride the orange line or the red line or the blue line, not the green line. You don't really want to ride the green line in Boston, but you might have to. But there's a gap because there's a platform. So you have the platform and you have the train. And you don't want to get your foot caught in between and then head first into somebody sitting down. And so there's signs all over London that say, mind the gap. And I think this is something that's also helpful for us when we engage with the text, we engage with the Bible. Because this book was written for the, for the most part, um, a good half of it was written in the first century, and beyond that, thousands and thousands of years ago. So there's obviously a gap that we need to mind as we're engaging this text. And tonight, um, one thing that I want to just, again, I touched on this a little bit last time, but just to mind the gap of the first century culture. So as I mentioned before, we have to remember that um, Israel was an oppressed people. They were people under the rule of Rome. So soldiers could come in at any time, and they could force them to walk a mile with them. Uh, they were oppressed um, economically, socially, politically. Uh, you have to remember that, that some scholars say the Israelites were taxed up to 40%. This isn't the rich. This is the poor. So if you imagine you're a family, you have four or five kids, you're earning minimum wage, and you're taxed 40%. And so how that would break down is about 12.5% would go to Rome. Because remember, they're under Rome. They're paying a tribute to Rome. 10% would go to the temple. They were good Jews. They wanted to feed and uh, clothe those working in the temple and pay for the upkeep of the temple. So they did that as well. And then the rest of that percentage, about 40% of the total, so the rest of that pie would actually go towards the rulers of the land. Now, in ancient times, if you wanted to be remembered, you built things. That's just what you did. And it's the same around here. If you ever drive around the city, especially around election time, you see Mayor Menino built this, Mayor Menino built that, Mayor Menino did this, right? It's the same thing back then. And so they would build things. And of course, that required money. And so these leaders, these puppet leaders of Israel under Rome would tax and tax and tax the people so they could build things. And now we all have taxes in our day, but for us, it's a little bit different. When I... Um, come to turn in my taxes in April, I just write a check and send it off in the mail. 
and maybe I'll grumble a little bit to the IRS as I write my check, but I don't have to actually deal with anybody in person. In the ancient times, they had tax collectors who would go door to door and, and gather the taxes. So you had these, these men, primarily men, these tax collectors, who you had a face. This is like the face of oppression is at your door saying, give me the money so that we can build things that you'll never enjoy and so that we can make your family destitute. So not your favorite people, okay? Tax collectors, not your favorite people. And on top of that, these tax collectors were often uh, deceitful. So if they had to take, say, 30% of your income, they would probably take closer to 32 to 35%. And then they would take that extra for themselves. So there's tons of writing in, in the um, first century, and everyone's saying, whatever you do, don't be a tax collector. Okay? It's like, and just to be a little explicit, no one grows up and tells you you should be a pimp or a prostitute. And so now we all cringe when we think of those words, pimp and prostitute. And we have to, that same cringing that we're feeling right now is what people felt in the first century for tax collector. Is that all, you guys all tracking with me? There is this cringing that people think about when they think of tax collector. And so now Jesus, of course, is preaching. He's proclaiming this kingdom. He's proclaiming the way the world ought to be. He's going all over Galilee doing this. And he's saying that this is the time when justice will come. Those who are far from God will come close to God. And he's preaching these things. And then we come in our text today. Jesus moves on. And he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi. This is also Matthew who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, Matthew rose and followed him. Now again, remember... There's an oppressed group, and Jesus is preaching freedom, he's preaching, preaching justice, preaching proclamation, and preaching people coming back to be into relationship with God. Okay, so who, if you're an average Galilean, who do you think God is going to judge? We probably have a list of people, and on that list is definitely the tax collectors, right? This is the face of oppression as they knock on your door. This is the pimp, this is the prostitute. If anyone's going to get it, the tax collectors ought to be the ones getting it. But this is what Jesus does here. Is Jesus says, follow me. And he doesn't just invite this tax collector, say, into the kingdom. Saying, now, you are now in a place where you can be closer to God, where you can be reconciled and restored back to God. He doesn't just say that. No, he says, you are going to be my disciple. And you are going to be on the cutting edge. You're going to be on the forefront of this mission to bring this message to the rest of Israel. And so this is something that's radical. This is something that is, makes me question why. Why Matthew? Why tax collector? Why someone on the margins of society? Why would he choose Matthew? And thankfully, Luke goes on to tell us exactly why. So Levi... He, fo- he rises up, he follows him. And then the next verse, it says, and Levi, you know, it says, and he left everything. And then the following verse says, and Levi made him a great feast in his house. Now, this isn't irony. This isn't hypocrisy. We have to understand that, yes, he did leave everything. But in that culture, he's moving from being a tax collector to a follower of a rabbi or a follower of a traveling teacher. And there's a whole social, cultural gap that he's jumping right now especially if you think about a moral plane. He's jumping this gap, and he had to somehow transition out. And it's in the same way today. If we get a new job, if we go to a new school, if we leave our city, we throw a goodbye party, and it's transitioning us out. And so here, 
Matthew is throwing a party to transition from being a tax collector to being a disciple. And so all his tax collector friends, others who are of that same social status would have been there at this party. So he's there, he's lounging around. It says there's a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. They're eating together. And the Pharisees, who Mark talked about last week, had come down from Jerusalem and are kind of investigating this whole Jesus thing and this whole proclamation of, of the kingdom of God, the rescue plan. And they're kind of wondering what's going on. So they asked the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answers them, those who are well have no need of a, of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So remember, Jesus' call He's going all over Galilee, and he's calling, he's proclaiming the rescue mission of God. It is here, it is come, it is among us, it is beginning. And a key part of that rescue mission is restoration. Now, typically in the American Western church, we've called this the forgiveness of sins, which is part of what Jesus is preaching. If, we were to, if you were to imagine an ark here, the forgiveness of sins is here, but the bigger idea that he's preaching is the idea of restoration, And this isn't just humans. This is a restoration of the whole world, the whole cosmos, if you will. So remember that when we die, our hope isn't in some floating ghostly body before God singing Alleluia for eternity. That's not our hope. Our hope is in a bodily resurrection. That when we die and Jesus comes back, we'll be raised again with bodies. I'm sure slightly different than we have them now, but bodies nonetheless. And God is restoring this whole earth so that in the end times, when we are set into eternity, we'll be on the earth, a restored earth, an earth that's perfect, an earth that's free of blemish, but an earth nonetheless. Our eternal hope is a very visceral, physical hope. So Jesus is preaching this restoration, and part of that restoration is a restoration to God. But the key part is that if Jesus is preaching restoration, then these people have to be restored from something and to something. And one of the reasons I believe that Jesus called Matthew is because Matthew had no doubt in his mind that he needed to be restored. There's no question. Remember this pimp, this prostitute, this man on the margins, this epitome of oppression, He had no doubt as he went to market, as he bought food for his family, the stigma that surrounded him, he had no doubt in his mind that he needed to be restored from something. And so Jesus is calling this man, saying, come, be restored to the way we ought to be. Be restored to right relationship with God. And for many of us, we come into this room fully aware that we need restoration. When I was five years old, my um, father left, and it's actually the first memory I have, is my father, my mother, and, and father arguing, and my father walking out. And there were probably countless nights between that point and about the junior high time when I remember crying myself to sleep every night. And I knew in my heart that there was something that wasn't the way it ought to be. There was something that wasn't right. I knew that there's something that needed to be restored. And so maybe some of you are walking in tonight with a similar feeling. You know that there's something, that there's brokenness, maybe with a relationship, maybe with your own parents, an ex-boyfriend, a girlfriend, a spouse, 
that there's something that needs to be restored. Maybe it's something in yourself. Maybe it's loneliness. I remember the first few years I moved to Boston, I would spend countless nights just biking and begging God for a friend, a companion, someone who I could just connect with. So maybe you're walking in here tonight with a heavy heart of loneliness, just yearning and hoping for a restoration. And we have to remember that in order to receive the grace of God, in order to meet God, we need to recognize that we need this restoration. When I was 22 years old, I began counseling here in the city of Boston. Um, Short story is that my father was a workaholic, and I knew that I had that tendency in me, and I wanted to avoid uh, some of those things that I saw creeping up in myself, a desire for perfectionism and things like that, and really seeking out my identity. And I remember, um, it wasn't a Christian counselor, but I remember this turning point. This is actually, I think, probably the first time I ever understood what the grace of God is like. And I'm sitting there, and we're talking about love and how I was just saying I have a hard time like really receiving love, receiving, receiving compliments, anything. And because I knew that something, I just had this yearning that I knew I needed to be restored. And the counselor just says, well, imagine you're, you know, your brother, your younger brother. I have a younger brother. And he's like, imagine that your brother is all the time giving off this kind of love to you. He's expressing his love to you. Even if he's not saying it, there's this love he's giving you. And my brother, I know, he loves me. There's probably nothing I could do to shake his love, to lose his love. And in that moment, I realized that if I have that from my brother, how much more so do I have that from God because of Jesus' death on the cross? How much more do I have this God who is eternally loving me, not because of anything I can do, not because of anything I did, but simply because of Jesus' death on the cross, not something I've earned. And so I had this moment when I was like, wow, so this is what grace is like. Burdens were lifted. I felt free in a way I've never felt free before. So maybe some of you are here tonight and you have this this yearning. You know that there's something, there's some brokenness in the area. You know there's a need for restoration. But maybe some of you are coming in tonight and you know, you have good gifts, you have good, ta- you have good talents, natural abilities, you excel in your field, you studied at the right school, I mean, this is Boston of all places, and you've done well for yourself. And so you have Jesus, who's actually another checklist, another box to be checked over here. And you understand that, yes, religion is important, so I go to church on Sundays, I check that off, and just to make sure I'm not missing anything, I'll pray and read the Bible once in a while, maybe even every day. But he isn't in the center of your life. And so maybe for some of us, we need Jesus to meet us and restore us from brokenness. And maybe for others of us tonight, we need Jesus to point out that brokenness. To be reminded of those areas in our lives where we're falling short. That selfishness. And I, I, um, in in high school and in college, uh, I had a really big problem with sarcasm and using my words in the wrong way. And I feel like God has um, given me a gift um, to, to just be able to be intuitive and understand people. Myers-Briggs has confirmed that gifting. <laughs> and um, and I, I feel like God has allowed me that. But when I was in high school and college, I would totally use that just to really jab at someone. I would perceive their weaknesses, their greatest fears, and say just the right thing I know 
that would break them down. And, um, and so my senior year in high school, I went on this guy's retreat uh, with a bunch of guys in high school and college, and we went away. And as we're pulling up to our retreat site in Iowa, coming from Chicago, remember, so going to Iowa, and we pull in, and the, um, the leader turns around in the van, and he says, okay, guys, one rule for this trip. Every time you say something sarcastic, 10 push-ups. No questions asked. So we're like, yeah, that's fine. Two minutes outside the van, I'm on the ground doing push-ups. And I probably did close to 500 push-ups that weekend. I was just doing push-up after push-up. And at the beginning, I thought, oh, this was funny. That was a really good comment. I don't care if I'm doing push-ups. And at the end, I'm realizing, wow, look at how pervasive this is in my life. Look at how often I'm cutting people down. And I believe that God has set me on a path towards healing in that area. And I believe part of my, my call as a pastor is, is to encourage people to speak into those areas of fear, of hesitation, and really speak life. And I'm not there yet. But it wasn't, if it wasn't for that moment of broken, brokenness as I'm doing my 450th push-up, if it wasn't for that moment when I realized, man, if I'm cutting people down all the time, what does that mean? What kind of man am I becoming? So maybe for some of you tonight, it's that sarcasm. It's that uh, cutting other people down. Maybe it's a sin that you do over and over again that you want to stop, but you can't seem to do it. And so God, we have to remember that God sent Jesus to proclaim this message that the world is coming back to the way it ought to be. And humanity, through Jesus, we are coming back to the way we ought to be. We are being restored. And as we're being restored, we're asking to be reoriented. We remember that in the passage, as soon as Jesus is, calls Matthew, Matthew goes and he gives up everything and he follows Jesus. And so there's this reorientation that's happening. We're moving Jesus from the margins of our lives, from another box to check off to the center of our life. And so maybe there's something, that act of selfishness, maybe a, a desire to not forgive somebody, unforgiveness. There's something that's blocking us from being reoriented around Jesus as the center. And so as we come tonight to the Eucharist, to the Lord's table, as a community, when we take that bread and we take that wine, the body and blood of Jesus, we are saying as a community, yes to restoration. And we are saying yes to reorientation. And so I'm asking that all of you, as we say that community, that you all would say that individually. And to say yes to something means you have to say no. So maybe you need to say no to surfing the internet or no to watching the TV and maybe yes to reading your Bible and praying before you go off to work or before you go to bed. Maybe you need to say no to unforgiveness and selfishness and sarcasm and yes to the grace of God in your life to change you. And so as we sing tonight, before we take communion and after we take communion, there's a song that we'll be singing, All Who Are Weak, All Who Are Weary. Come to the rock, come to the fountain, come on and be set free. So I ask you tonight, search your hearts, engage. Where is Jesus inviting you to be restored? And where is he inviting you to be reoriented around him? And if you've never been restored by Jesus, then tonight is an opportunity to be restored to him for the first time. Amen.